In the Perspectrum podcast, we discuss controversial topics. Outside of this context, Michael and I are both working professionals. While doing this show, we are not acting as agents or representatives of our respective institutions. And none of the views that we express reflect the outlooks of our employers. So don't come to my office and throw toilet paper at me. And I don't have an office, but don't come to my queue. Welcome to the Perspectrum. I'm Nathan Seelove. And I'm Michael Bloom. And today we got several exciting topics to talk to you about. Yeah, I'm actually really excited for today's episode. Yeah, as is often the case, we will be talking about Mm -hmm. COVID-19. And then we're going to talk about the proposals from Joe Biden's policy task force and discuss some of the good and some of the bad. And then we're going to end today with the start of a brand new series. Michael, do you want to briefly tell us what that new series is going to be? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so we don't quite have a name for it yet. It's either it's either the injustice system or the unjustice system. So if you have a vote, let us know. Um, but Which one this, of those is grammatically correct? I think it's injustice. But yeah. I like I like the way that unjustice kind of I mean, it perks rolls your off ear the up. better. Yeah. It's just like a different, it sounds different. Unjustice. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, if you have a vote, definitely let us know. But but the series is going to be each each time we come uh, with that series, which we'll do periodically. It won't be an every week thing. But um, we will be focusing on kind of a different set of problems or single problem within our criminal justice system. So the hope is to get to a place where we've pretty comprehensively covered some of the major structural flaws that overall um, lead to what amounts to be a really unjust justice system, a system that ends up putting people in prison at an unnecessarily high rate and for bad reasons and keeping them there for a really long time. And so we're going to walk through a bunch of issues ranging from what we'll talk about today, which is going to be focusing on the school to prison pipeline to racial disparities, uh, to private prisons, um, and potentially talk about the death penalty. We've been going back and forth on that. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that's going to be an interesting conversation because that, that's an issue that Michael and I agree on the conclusion, but not necessarily the reasoning behind it. Mm-hmm. So it could be a very interesting conversation in a philosophical type of way. Yeah. Um, but before all of that, so Michael, I woke up this morning, I checked my phone, and I saw the most insane news, mm-hmm. like the most insanely unexpected news. Mm. So I was looking through my news alerts, and it turns out that coronavirus has not magically disappeared. Wow. And I just, I don't get it because wasn't it supposed to magically disappear in April? You know, you are putting that master's degree to good use. (laughs) (laughs) What, what, remind me what month it is. It's like, it's, is it like June or July? It's July now. It's July. Yep. Yeah. That's, um, July's after April, isn't it? Yes, yeah, according to the last so, time so I So so that checked. doesn't so that doesn't that doesn't make any sense. So Mm-mm. what is going on? What are what are the COVID numbers at this point? Yeah, the COVID numbers are so are, are further than ever from gone. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, so worldwide at this point we've got 13.2 million cases, which is 1.5 million cases more than last week or a 13% increase. Um, we've hit 575,000 deaths worldwide, which is 35,000 more than last week, or a 6% increase. So deaths haven't increased at the same rate as as cases. Um, and we've got 7.8 million recovered, which is a 59% 
uh, of total cases, which is actually a good thing. That's up 3% from last week. So that means that um, people are recovering faster than they are getting sick, which is kind of the path that we want to be on, um, if only that were true in the U.S. as well. <laughs> so in the U.S., um, we've got 3.5 million cases, which is a 17% increase over last week. So that's faster than the increase worldwide. And that's an increase of 500,000 more cases than last week. So remember like the good old days, like a month ago when we were having a steadily, steady increase of about 200,000 cases a week. Yeah. This is more than double that. It's, it's like crazy to me that I am like, I'm like nostalgic for a month ago when we were only seeing 200,000 increases a, a week. Yeah. So we've hit 138,000 deaths, which is a 4% increase from last week. Um, so about 5,000 more deaths. But, but notice that disparity, right? We've got 17% more cases, but only 4% more deaths. And what we know about this thing is that it takes a little while to die. Um, and so like we can likely expect those increased case numbers to flow into increased death numbers um, over the next few weeks. Potentially, but there is also the idea to consider that um, that some hospitals are just getting better at figuring out how to treat it. Yeah, um, yeah. So that's that that's also important to note. Yeah, I'd say that's that's true. And what we've seen over time is that the mortality rate has gone down. Um, yeah. But but there's no way that a mortality rate will compensate for like a 17 percent increase in deaths. You know what I mean? Like yeah, yeah. No, it's not going to bring that, that down to to four percent. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But but you're totally right. Like the the more we flatten the curve and the better we get at treating this, the more survivable it becomes. Um, the challenge and is we were that, starting to we were starting to plateau it a little bit. Yeah. Like if you look at oh yeah the the increase graph of the United States, it was like it was flat, and then it felt like Americans just decided, you know what, screw it, and then it just shot up. Yeah, it's it's totally true. Like yeah, that's. We were just sitting at 200,000 new cases a week for a good more than a month. And then now we're up at a 500,000 week over week increase. And at this point, we also have 1.5 million people recovered, um, which is actually the same proportion of new cases as last week. So we're not, we're not making progress on recoveries versus new cases. Um, but I want to call out a couple new numbers on top of like the numbers we usually report. And that is a little bit more of a comparison between the U.S. and kind of the rest of the world. Um, and, that's, and that's to say that, you know, currently we make up 27% of total cases. Um, now, remember, we make up around 5% of the total population of the world. So that's already an overrepresentation in the U.S. But importantly, we make up 33% of new cases. So Ooh. like we are significantly driving that new case number worldwide. Um, so really we're like significantly losing the race. Now on the bright side, as Nathan kind of pointed out, um, you know, we make up only 24% of worldwide deaths with 27% of worldwide cases. So if, if you're in the U.S., it's a more survivable disease than if you're in the rest of the world. Um, and we... But also, like, we only make 14%, up 14% of new deaths. So, again, it's that, it's that disparity that we might see an increase in death following an increase in cases, which is kind of what we come to expect from this disease. So, basically, if you have it, 
you probably want to be here. If you don't have it, you don't want to be here. Yes. Now that's a, that's a perfect way to characterize it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're more survivable than a lot of places, but you're definitely more likely to get it here than many other countries. So it hasn't disappeared. Uh, no, no, quite, quite on the contrary. In fact, we're seeing spikes all around the country. So Florida just this weekend broke the record for the most new daily cases with 15,000 new cases in one day. Um, now, that, that huge increase in newly discovered cases is partially due to more testing, but also due to extremely widespread community transmission. Um, and this is over and above California's record setting 11,000 new cases in a single day last week. Um, and seven-day averages for new cases hit highs in Alabama, Florida, Mississippi, Montana, North Carolina, Oklahoma, and Puerto Rico. Um, and, Ooh. you know, we're seeing deaths starting to do the same thing. Yeah, so so this that seven day average uh, number, which is like obviously a better number than just a daily average, because daily you know that can be real super dependent on you know who's testing that day. Um, but that's that's risen one hundred and sixty five percent over the last month, one hundred and sixty five percent, almost doubled. Um, and yet, even with all of these numbers going the wrong direction. Um, we're still hearing pushes from, from leaders and businesses and organizations to reopen the country. You know, in Florida, Florida, which just broke the record for new cases, Disney World opened on Saturday. <laughs> and, and it's the a magical place. <laughs> yeah. Watch it get no cases. Like, <laughs> churches are full of cases, but Disney World, <laughs> everyone's cured when they go to Disney World. Well, I guess World. God has spoken. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe it's Patch Adams who's spoken. Like, laughter is the best. <laughs> um, yeah, but, but the, the governor of, of Florida, even with this huge increase, is still pushing for a really aggressive reopening plan. And, um, including reopening schools to five days a week in the new academic year. So just in the next couple of months, schools will be pushing re schools to reopen in Florida, which, you know, for a Republican governor is, is expectedly not too far from um, what's being pushed by some of the, you know, most conservative people in the administration. Um, so, you know, Betsy DeVos, our inimitable education secretary, um, is, is against advice from experts pushing um, schools to reopen throughout the U.S. And um, she said that Trump, the Trump administration was looking at, quote, all options um, for pulling federal funding from schools that don't open in the fall. So, like, pulling okay. funding from our already <laughs> underfunded school system. <laughs> okay, this is, this is after trying to make the claim that the reason why schools weren't opening was for political reasons. Yeah. <laughs> and, he was, and, and that's a bad thing. It's a bad thing if schools are not opening for political reasons. Yes, that so is So the bad response thing. then is, let me do something super political right back. Let me take yeah. your funding away. Yeah. Because I think that you're trying to personally attack me. Yeah. And, and in, a very, in a very typical move, that political spitefulness is going to hurt a lot of people. Um, yeah. Yeah. So according to a study put out by the Kaiser Family Foundation last week, an estimated 1.5 million teachers or about one in four are older than 65 or have a health condition that put them at higher risk of serious illness from COVID. There's some question about whether kids are going to actively spread this thing. But if they do, 
it's not only going to hurt their parents and can like to help spread the thing, it, it's going to hurt teachers who are some of the most needed and undervalued and selfless people in our society. Oh, thank you. <laughs> well, of course. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm indebted to my teachers and I didn't, I wasn't even in school for that long. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Well, one thing that I will say though, that I, I find I'm very grateful for is both of the schools that I teach at the classes that I'm going to be teaching, they're still going to be online. Like they're still, they're still trying to keep things as online as possible. And specifically my departments are like, no, 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 we're, we're only having online classes. So that's something that I consider myself very grateful for. Uh, I, I do miss being in the classroom, but I also, you know, don't want to get COVID and test other people. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. And that's like, that's actually pretty different from a lot of universities. Um, yeah. You know, a lot of universities are really pushing to get students back in classrooms, at least in some kind of capacity, including opening dorms and things like that um, by the fall semester. So that sounds like a terrible idea. It sounds like a terrible. <laughs> yeah, it really does. It sounds like a really terrible idea. And it sounds like one that's more about serving the school and serving the like system of higher education than it is about serving the students, you know? I feel like I shouldn't comment on that. <laughs> yeah, maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. Any of these schools listening, hire Nathan. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, but in an effort to make a bad situation even worse, um, now Trump is trying to go after Fauci. <laughs> yeah. He's been making some weird criticisms. First off, like, there's this weird talking point that he said during a rally, like, I don't need, I don't remember how long it was ago. I mean, months during the Trump administration feel like years. <laughs> there's this weird talking point that he made where he said that you're supposed to have an ID to go out to buy groceries, but not to go vote. Now, Trump has probably never been to a grocery store in his life because, you know, he's a billionaire. But a lot of people heard that and they universally ridiculed him for for it because that's just a stupid thing to say. So he recently retweeted this guy named Mark Young, who I, 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 I've never heard of, but apparently he co-hosts a podcast. Um, idiot. <laughs> <laughs> who holds the podcast? That's crazy. Yeah. I'm sure he's heard of us, though. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Um, and 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 he, Trump retweeted this this statement from him from uh, Mark Young. He said, "So based on Dr. Fauci and the Democrats, I will need an ID to go shopping, but not to vote." Like, what, what are you even saying? I <laughs> first off, I have not heard a single Democrat or Dr. Fauci say anything about needing an ID to go to the grocery store. Now, I've heard them say that. You should wear a mask to go to a grocery yeah, store. Yeah. And I'm sure that they would also agree that you should wear a mask to go vote as well. So I don't understand what the point he's trying to make here. And the issue is Trump is starting to become more publicly contemptuous towards Dr. Fauci. Mm-hmm. And that is something that has been our worst nightmare from the very beginning. There's apparently this mentality at the White House where they all hate the fact that Dr. Fauci is viewed as like this great authority mm-hmm. on COVID, which you would think. You mean that, an expert? 
Yeah. Like, <laughs> you would think that if... So Dr. Fauci is a part of the Trump administration. Yeah. So you would think that the Trump administration would want their representatives to be as reliable as possible. So that just doesn't make any damn sense. So anyways, he was also on Fox News speaking to Greta Van Susteren. I have no idea if I pronounced that correctly, but I don't really care that much. Um, and Trump said, quote, I disagree with him. You know... Dr. Fauci said, don't wear masks. Now he says, wear them. And you know, he said numerous things. Don't close off China. Don't ban China. And I did it anyway. I sort of didn't listen to my experts and I banned China. And he went on to basically say that Fauci has been wrong on several things throughout the pandemic. And look, if you want to say that the call that Fauci made to early in the pandemic say, let's not wear masks, you know, unless you are at unless you are sick or a healthcare professional. And the reasoning behind that was sound. And they were clear about this. I One thing that I've been seeing that's kind of weird that I've even been seeing in leftist circles is they've been saying that he lied about that, that he lied that the reason why he didn't want people to wear masks was because of shortages for healthcare workers on top of the fact that uh, it's more about Wearing a mask is more about preventing other people from getting a disease that you have rather than preventing you from getting a disease that someone else has. He was honest about that from the very beginning. I don't understand why, because he decided, oh, no, it's better to try to institute um, macro level mask wearing than it is to just say, hey, if you think you might be sick, wear a mask. Mm -hmm. I, I don't understand how that was lying. It was a mistake, but yeah. it wasn't lying. So, yeah, yeah, he did make a mistake there. But first off, the buck stops at Trump, number one. Number two, Trump said that we should inject bleach into our lungs. Yeah. And also said that we shouldn't wear masks. So, like, he wasn't yeah. right about, you know, in not listening yeah, to his he wasn't, right, he about wasn't it either. right about that. And from the very beginning, he's basically been like, oh, I'm not going to wear a mask. I'm not going to wear a mask. It, it's a sign of weakness, mm -hmm. you know. Which then he went from that to saying, oh, no, 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 I'm going to wear a mask. I think I look yeah. cool in a mask. I look like the Lone Ranger, which, again, makes no sense because the Lone Ranger wore his mask on his eyes and not his face. But, again, not at all relevant to the conversation. Um, so that was a weird flip. But Trump has been wrong about so many things. And from the very beginning, he called it a Democratic hoax. Yeah. So, yeah. look, you can – you, the person listening – and, and Michael and I can point out the fact that, yeah, Fauci did make a mistake when he told people, let's not wear masks. But Trump doesn't get to make that argument. Yeah, exactly. And, and a couple more things. Like, first of all, Trump is bragging about ignoring his experts. Yeah. So, like, the idea that he is somehow in a better position to like call the shots than his experts is crazy and bragging about the fact that you have been, you know, ignoring the best advice and information at the time is, is insane and, and, and a sign of like stupidity and weakness. And secondly, like you, we, we talk all of the time about, you know, Trump being divisive and like dividing the country, but part of having an effective, response to something like this is having a effective and united team, yeah. you know? So like, and so 
what you want to Nathan's point is credibility. What you want is to have all like the most like expert and credible people on your team and to then support their credibility. So like it would be one thing if Trump said, you know, Fauci has made a number of mistakes. Um, you know, they were based on the best information at the time. And, you know, we think he did a good job, but we're also going to go look for other people to help lead this. That would be one thing. But just saying like, oh, this guy is, you know, someone who just made a bunch of mistakes. What an idiot. I wouldn't, I never listened to him. I wouldn't listen to him any day. You know, that's like, it's just totally undermining to the effort. Yeah. And it's, it's symptomatic of the lack of leadership that we've seen from the very beginning. In he seems to resent the f- he he seems to resent the fact that Dr. Fauci is seen as a more credible source on this than he is. Mm-hmm. Which look, if I were the president, I would hope that my health expert that people would view my health expert as a better source of information than me. Yeah. Like <laughs> I mean, that's yeah. why I have a health expert. That's why I'm not the health expert he is. Like yeah. <laughs> it makes no sense. Um and also I mean if anybody has any counterexamples, like feel free to send them my way. But so far, I haven't seen any evidence that the Chinese ban really had much of an effect. I mean, at the mm-hmm. time, the COVID cases that were coming up in the United States were traced back to Europe. Yeah. So they weren't coming from China anyway. So there's not really evidence to show that that had any positive impact. And considering the fact that we are handling this virus worse than any other country in the entire planet. Even if that made a minor, even if that had like a minor um, effect on it, it, just that one example pales in comparison to the multitude of idiotic mistakes that we've made throughout this entire pandemic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I mean, none the least of which is the fact that Trump has now moved to withdraw the United States from the WHO. Yeah, seriously. During a pandemic. Yeah. It's like your house is on fire and you run, you grab a fire extinguisher and said, well, I guess this didn't work and then throw it out the window. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's great. Yeah. It's absolutely insane. And as you might expect from a group of people doing a totally half-assed job and then trying to call it a victory, you end up probably not accomplishing the things that you set out to accomplish. So the whole, the whole like push from the Trump administration and most Republicans is that we need to as quickly as possible get to reopening the economy, get to a place where we can mitigate the negative economic impact. And, you know, Cynically, we could say this is because there's a 2020 election coming up and the economy is one of the best issues for them to try to run on. Or generously, we could just say that they want to alleviate suffering. You know, take your pick. Um, But ultimately, because of, you know, the crappy response and because they're trying to open up too soon and too loosely, they are endangering and stifling the recovery that they specifically were trying to achieve. So so from the very beginning, we were expecting this to be a relatively short recession, right? Like we knew we, we saw the numbers coming out of the uh, unemployment office pointing towards people like extremely high levels of unemployment. But we were expecting that, you know, as we got this thing under control, as we flattened the curve, 
um, and we're able to like reasonably reopen things as we got a handle on the virus, we'd be able to slowly reopen. And this wouldn't be, you know, a multi-year recovery. It would be a fairly fast recovery from a fairly deep decline. Unfortunately, because of such a slow response, it seems like it's really slowing down the recovery and may turn this into a legitimate long-term recession. So according to Morgan Stanley, after you know two actually surprisingly good months of economic growth and job, um, and, and job growth, uh, it looks like we're starting to shed jobs again um, in July and August. So, so many small businesses that originally received these you know, forgivable government loans under the PPP program um, have now exhausted those funds entirely, and you know their their income and cash flow is drying up. Um, and the reality is that, like, you know, we can't fix that by reopen like by reopening too quickly and too poorly. Um, and then a lot of larger companies are starting to like trim down, um, you know, their payrolls as well. Um, to try to prep for a longer-term downturn. And so, yeah, we gained, like, 7.5 million jobs in, in May and June, which is great, um, but we lost, like, significantly more than that. We lost two-thirds more than that during the start of this thing. And at the same time, like, United Airlines announced plans for layoffs of, of like, 95,000 work, uh, workers. Um, Brooks Brothers um, has now filed for bankruptcy. Bed Bath & Beyond said they're closing 200 stores. Like, Companies are starting to treat this like a legitimate recession. Um, and the reality is that without opening more effectively, there's not a way for us to stem that and to shorten it. It's really terrifying and sad <laughs> that like the mismanagement of this whole process is not only leading to more death, but also more economic strife. And, you know, the people that were trying to put their faith in this government, however misguided, um, you know, will be punished right along with the rest of us. It's pretty sad. And now it's time for one of our more lighthearted segments, Tips for Good. So Nathan, why do we do Tips for Good? Well, because Michael, I will tell you what I want. What I really, really want. <laughs> What's that? I want to give you a tip. <laughs> that's excellent. and also i want to make the world a better place and all that's that. great yeah that's great yeah <laughs> and our tip is if you want to be my lover you got to get with you my friends <laughs> <laughs> you know i know that that like i know that that song is supposed to be about like becoming friends with the friends of the person that you're with. Mm -hmm. But when I was younger, I always thought it was like referring to a threesome. Um, <laughs> like group sex. Was... I mean, that's what it sounds like. <laughs> you're like five years well, you old and you're like, ah, I guess that's friend. an orgy. <laughs> no, not when I was. <laughs> no, no. When I was, when I was a mature adult, like, you know, when I was 13. Ah, so Nathan, what's our tip for good this week? Well, Michael, our tip for good this week is a rhetorical change. Hmm. Stop accusing your political opponents of hating America. Just stop it. <laughs> we're looking at it's... you, Tucker Carlson. <laughs> we're looking at you, Tucker Carlson. We're looking at you, Donald Trump. We're looking yeah. at you. I mean, countless, a countless lot of people. people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and look, it's it's not just people on the right. Mm -hmm. So. Let me just talk about this as a general principle. 
when you use that the rhetoric of so and so hates America because they disagree with your vision of the United States, you are shutting down discourse. Mm-hmm. There's no conversation to be had. It's not there's no rational debate to be had when you are starting from the point of view that the person that you're talking to or talking about has a fundamentally divisive and irredeemable viewpoint. Mm -hmm. So it's not just a straw man. It's not just a non sequitur. It's not just an ad hominem, but it is lazy. Yeah. I mean, I truly, so, okay. I hate Donald Trump. I think I've made that pretty clear on this show. I don't think that he hates America. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there are a lot of American values that I think he despises. Yeah. But I don't think that he hates America. So I try to focus my criticisms of him on where he actually goes wrong. I try Mm -hmm. to make them substantive. But saying that someone hates America, that's not a substantive criticism. And the problem is it's usually used against people that are simply criticizing the United States. Look, the nature of the First Amendment, the freedom of speech, it creates the implication that the United States is not perfect. It was not perfect back then, and it will never be. Hmm. You know, the first few words of the Constitution were in order to create a more perfect union, meaning that they knew that we weren't perfect and that we needed to progress more to create a more perfect union. And in order to do that, people need to be free to express their grievances, to express their problems with the government and, yes, with the country. So if you make the, if you say that because someone protests police brutality by kneeling during the national anthem or by, or, or if somebody... Uh, is pointing out the fact that the United States has some really screwed up parts of our history. That that means that that person hates America. You are being intellectually dishonest. So, look, I could easily say that a person who shuts down discourse, shuts down freedom of speech through that accusation, hates America because they're fundamentally going against the idea that people need to be able to freely express their problems in order to make a more perfect union. I could easily make that argument, but I'm not going to because that would be intellectually dishonest. That would be destructive to discourse. Mm -hmm. So just stop doing it. Like whether you're on the left or the right, don't accuse your political opponents of hating America. Yeah. Out loud or in your own head. All it does is all it does is discredit them. And you know, maybe they have some good things to say. Maybe you don't know everything. (laughs) And that's tips for good. And now it's time for a segment that I'm honestly pretty excited about, which is to talk about some of the proposals put forward by um, presumptive Democratic nominee Joe Biden's Unity Task Force, um, which was put together by him and um, in collaboration with Bernie Sanders to try to get you know, people from, you know, both the far left and the moderate left sides of the Democratic Party um, to help put together policy proposals to be part of the Democratic platform. And, you know, the results were better than I was expecting. 
Yeah. There are some, there are definitely some disappointments in here. Um, but uh, overall, there are some very necessary proposals and very surprising proposals uh, that, that I read. Um, before I get started on this, I do want to point out one thing. So the reason why we get policy concessions is because people within the more moderate wing of the Democratic Party want to make sure that people that feel disenchanted with the Democratic Party, that are pissed off at the Democratic Party for not representing the best interests of working class Americans and you know other marginalized groups, the Democratic Party knows that they're at risk of losing some voters. So one of the things that I often hear from you know standard Democratic friends of mine is when people that consider themselves to be in the left flank of the Democratic Party threaten not to vote or to vote for a third party in a presidential election, that they're just being childish or they're just being destructive or whatnot. Now, I will say that I've, I've never made that threat because I've always kind of been of the point of view that you always choose whoever the better option is. Yeah. However, you cannot argue that that has had an impact because they wouldn't have made policy concessions if they weren't worried that they might lose some votes. Like, yeah. So letting the Democratic Party know that they're not entitled to your vote force, can actually force them to make some concessions. Yeah. Um, so again, the, the fact that turnout is like a key thing that everybody yeah. talks about from a strategic perspective, that it's not just, you know, appeasing your base, but also driving turnout means that people that stay home are influencing the conversation. Yeah. So again, it's not my strategy. It's not the mm -hmm. strategy that I choose to use, but I would just like to point out that there is definitely an argument to be made that ensuring that they don't that they aren't entitled to your vote might actually have some benefits so let's go through some of the policy proposals before i get started on the task force recommendations i would like to talk about biden's tax plan because um, i've been reading some analyses of it recently and we talked about it last week a little bit you know we mm -hmm. actually had a lot of critical things to say about it um, specifically, what we were critical about was the fact that it increased the corporate tax rate from 21% to 28%, whereas before the Trump tax, tax cut, it was 35%, meaning that uh, that's a 7% decrease net by the Trump administration, which was a Trump victory. Mm -hmm. And I still maintain that criticism 100%. However, there's a lot more to Biden's tax plan that actually makes it one of the most progressive tax plans in history. Now, a lot of people might hear me say that and they might think, well, wait a minute. One of the most progressive tax plans in history wasn't the top marginal tax rate during the Eisenhower administration, like 90%. How could it even come close to that? Well, that's true. But keep in mind, there's a big difference between the marginal tax rate and the effective tax rate. You see, the tax rate, the official tax rate, the official income tax rate is rarely the effective tax rate. Mm -hmm. 
because there are so many different loopholes. There are so many different uh, exceptions, so many different ways that people can wiggle their way out of paying the top amount uh, of taxes, especially when they're one of the wealthiest Americans. So yeah. during the Eisenhower administration, the average uh, effective tax rate was around like 42, 43% for the highest earners, which, which is, is way higher than it is today. Yeah. Which is higher than it is today. Like, you know, <laughs> um, but let's look at what Biden's plan uh, proposes. So first off, let's look at the more modest proposal that most people are probably going to latch onto and say, well, that's nothing. So the modest proposal is increasing the income tax from 37% to what it was before the Trump tax cuts, which was 39.6%, which is a very moderate, modest increase, a very moderate increase. So again, you know, you're looking at that, you're looking at the corporate tax rate, you're thinking, okay, I, I don't see what you mean here yet, Nathan. Well, hold on. It also imposes a 12.4% social security payroll tax on income earned above 400,000 split evenly between employers and employees. Now, this is really important because currently there is a cap at social security payroll tax at 137,700 which means that income that is made over that amount does not get taxed at all. So what this basically does, it, it, it creates uh, what the tax, uh, what taxfoundation.org refers to as a donut hole where income between um, the current cap and $400,000 isn't taxed, but anything over $400,000 is taxed at that 12.4% divided between employers and employees. This is really big because payroll tax is one of the most regressive tax rates in the United States. Like this is one of the biggest reasons why uh, on the whole, the United States has a very regressive tax system. So removing that cap is massive. And it helps fund Social Security, which we exactly. all want. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, and it also includes some of the closing of loopholes. So it caps the tax benefit of itemized deductions to 28%, which means mm. that if you are making, if you are in a tax bracket that pays higher than 28%, there will be significant limitations placed on itemized deductions that's huge because like one of the one of the ways that really wealthy people are able to save a lot on their taxes and lower their effective tax rate is do things like donate to charities and yeah. you take that as an itemized deduction that reduces your tax base and um you know that can have a huge benefit now you know we want people to donate to charities. So like having the incentive that they can still take itemized deductions is a good thing. Um, but having a, a cap on that so that th it's not like some bottomless pit where you can just keep kind of reducing your tax rate, the more deductions you take. That's, that's really good. Another proposal, which I think this might actually be the most important one is it taxes capital gains 
at the same rate as income tax for people that make over $1 million. Mm, that's huge. That is huge. Because currently, capital gains, which is tax, which is a, a tax rate on investments, is not taxed at the same rate as income tax, which is ridiculous. Yeah, and this is sense. why you have these investment billionaires that pay a less percentage of their taxes than their secretary. Mm-hmm. And this and this would change that. So that is huge. So at the end of the day, this makes the effective tax rate for those at the top one of the highest that it's ever been in the history of the United States because of all these corporate loopholes that they're closing. So it's not everything that we wanted. Like it doesn't include a wealth tax and, you know, it's not a top marginal tax rate of 70%. But it's it's definitely not bad and it's definitely an improvement and it would definitely generate a significant amount of revenue. In fact, uh, it's estimated that over the next decade it would produce uh 3.8 trillion dollars. That's excellent. Yeah, cuz so, ultimately like you can't have these programs without increasing the revenue base. Um and it's certain we don't certainly want to increase the revenue from you know, the lowest earners, that seems pretty obvious. So yeah. this seems like a, a pretty exciting and progressive plan. And all of this information can be found on taxfoundation.org uh, slash Joe Biden tax plan 2020. So I would, if you want to look into it more, I definitely recommend going to that. Um, now let's look at some of the recommendations from the task force, because there were some, there were some surprises in here. So I want to mm-hmm. focus uh, in a little bit on climate and then discuss a little bit uh, of criminal justice. Um, but before that, I do want to just point out that, um, in healthcare, no Medicare for all, mm-hmm. which is a surprise to no one. Yeah. <laughs> Joe Biden made it very clear that he's not going to do a single payer system that he'd veto it. You know, it doesn't matter that a study actually showed that it could save 70,000 lives a year. Nope, he's not going to do it. I'm still not okay with that. I'm still pissed off about that. So anybody that thinks I've forgotten about that, I have not forgotten about that. <laughs> I don't think anybody thinks you forgot about that, name. <laughs> I didn't forget about it. <laughs> <laughs> but let's talk, about, let's talk about some of the positives. So first mm-hmm. off, climate. One important thing to point out is that Joe <laughs> Biden's original climate plan was to make it so that um, we would get to a net zero carbon emission by 2050. Like that was the goal, which is considering the UN uh, warning that came out that basically said that we are nearing the point of no return. That is a laughable proposal. So the new proposal, it separates a few things out, but the goal is eliminate carbon pollutions from power plants completely by 2035, which is a much better proposal. So new buildings by 2030 would have net zero emissions and we would start to retrofit 4 million buildings within the next five years um, and unlock tens of billions of dollars in private sector funding to refit 4 million buildings, prioritizing hospitals, schools, and municipal buildings. There is also the goal to retrofit 2 million households within five years. 
um, increase fundings towards retrofits. So keep in mind, when we're talking about retrofits, we're talking about making it so that buildings are able to run on clean energy. You know, currently, uh, most of the energy that buildings get come from fossil fuel plants. Uh, and this is actually one of the reasons why, even if you drive an electric car, a lot of the time you're still generating a carbon footprint because the electricity is still coming from a plant that is run on fossil fuels. So getting rid of fossil fuel powered uh, power plants by 2035 and starting to wind them down and starting to put retrofits in it to in buildings to make that more viable is a huge deal. There's also proposals for investment in things like mass transit, uh, ports, rail. I never understood why the United States doesn't really use railroads that much. Mm. I mean, at least for for passenger travel. Yeah. Yeah, I never I never really understood that. And and all of these things come with jobs they come with expertise as as so many of the candidates have pointed out like a, investment in green infrastructure is a huge investment in the economy um, and the proposals also include provisions for the installation of 500 million solar panels and 60,000 um, wind turbines which is huge because obviously if you are retrofitting um, the buildings in the economy to be run on green energy you can't very well have um not enough energy. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So that's huge. I think that one thing that's one point that's important to make is that this, this might not target it as aggressively as we wanted it to, mm -hmm. but it's a lot more aggressive than what Biden's original plan was. And I mean, juxtapose this with the guy that thinks that wind turbines cause cancer and that climate change is a hoax created by the Chinese who got us out of the Paris climate agreement. I mean, yeah. on climate change, like there's no competition between the two of them. Yeah. And Literally change, the orange that, you know, you plug into and it charges a battery is better at climate change than Trump. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like climate change is one of those issues that we cannot afford to keep hitting snooze on. Mm -hmm. And if Trump gets reelected, that's what it's going to be for the next four years. We're not going to be doing much of anything on a national level to fight against climate change. Like that's just, that's just the reality. Yeah. So let's talk about criminal justice. So there is some, there's one huge disappointment that I have in this, but there are several huge surprises that I found mm -hmm. that I did was not expecting. First off, it calls for the end of cash bail, which we actually talked about on the podcast. Yeah. And we kind of broke down why it's kind of a crazy, BS antiquated BS. Yeah, totally garbage um, system that doesn't seem to help at all. And, and, and we even pointed to examples of uh, states that have already implemented the end of cash bail, and there was not an increase in crime rate. It, yeah. it was not like... There were not negative repercussions. There were only positive repercussions. So that's huge. And I did not expect that from Joe Biden. Yeah, I did either. not expect that from this task force. Um, another big one is the end, the criminalization of poverty, which what that means. So as it stands, if you fail to pay a fine in you know most places in the United States, you can be jailed for that. Mm-hmm. 
which is literally the criminalization of poverty. Because yeah. if you don't have the money to pay a fine, then you're just put in jail. Like, that's not okay. I don't know why anybody thinks that's okay. That is not okay. Yeah. And, and you know, to put that in a little perspective, like nearly 40% of, of Americans say that they would struggle to cover just a, a $400 unexpected expense. Yeah. So, like, the fact that, you know, you can literally, like, for, like 40% of Americans might go to jail if they get fined $400. That's insane. Yeah. They also have an increase in funding for public defenders. So that's important, too, because oftentimes public defenders are completely overworked. They're not paid much, um, and they tend to not be able to work specifically on cases for very long, which means that people in poverty who can't afford their own lawyer are much more likely to have a crappy defense. You know, it's mm. not the defender's fault. They're They're often given, like, several cases at once and told yeah you have to research for all these cases and defend all these people um get going so that's that's really important another important thing is the abolition of the death penalty on the federal level uh and also to incentivize states to follow the federal government's example which you know usually when these types of proposals use the word incentivize i mean that doesn't really mean much <laughs> But it is yeah, nice. Yeah. It, it is nice that they are taking a hard stance against it, and that they would abolish it on the federal level. So mm -hmm. that's something. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. One thing that was a huge disappointment for me uh, was they're calling for decriminalizing marijuana instead of legalizing it. Which, God, legalizing marijuana is the biggest no-brainer. Yeah. In politics, like. The fact that it's it's only illegal because of racism. Like, look, research the history of marijuana. The only reason why it was made illegal was to give people a reason to hate Mexicans. Like, that's mm. the only reason why it's illegal. It is significantly less harmful than alcohol. No one has ever OD'd on marijuana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> even even less harmful than jewel pods. Like, yeah. Like, and cigarettes. Now, that being said, one thing that I do think is is important that it does call for is uh, the expunging of all past marijuana convictions for use and possession. Mm -hmm. So that, that is big. That is, that is important. And another thing that's like a no brainer, if you're going to decriminalize, you should absolutely do that. Yeah. Uh, repealing mandatory minimum sentencing at a federal level and incentivizing States to repeal their mandatory mandatory minimums, which, you know, again, um, there's that word incentivize again. Yeah. Uh, so I, we don't know exactly what that is going to take the form of. Uh, and also there's some pretty important aspects of prison reform, like uh, the ending of solitary confinement in all but rare uh, exceptional cases, the end of the use of private prisons. Like that's, that's a big one. That's amazing. Uh, educational opportunities expanded in prisons, uh, medical care, uh, expanding medical care for uh, people in prison, establishing a bureau uh, to oversee complaints in prison, mm. to oversee conditions in prison. It's um, almost like we want people to get out of prison and rejoin society in a productive way. Yeah. What? That's so revolutionary. Yeah. Um, also, reentry. You know, making sure that 
um, we're preparing people for reentry. Mm-hmm. Um, f- for example, and this is one I actually did a forensic speech in which I advocated for this exact thing a while back. Uh, reinstating Pell Grant eligibility for previously incarcerated individuals—that is huge. Oh, that's huge. Because education is like education has been found to reduce recidivism massively. In fact, in fact, I actually, I actually researched the speech a a while ago that found that if we just gave, uh, people in prison post-secondary education, like full stop, just, just for free educated everybody in prison with post-secondary education for every $1 invested four to $5 would be saved because of how much it would reduce recidivism. Mm. That's so, incredible. Uh, also ensuring that um, uh, ensure 100% of formerly incarcerated individuals have housing upon reentry. That's another big one. Yeah. I, I, I'm not going to go through everything that's on the task force because it is a, it is 110 pages. Like I read some of the, uh, general things that I found very compelling, but there's definitely so much more to to look at, um, and I will be spending more time reading through it. But those are some of the things that really stood out to me. Yeah, and yeah, all of that is super exciting, um, and I'm impressed by by these proposals that the tax that the um, task force put together. One thing that we do, of course, want to emphasize is that. You know, this is a proposal for the platform, which is great, but we need to try to make sure that as many of these productive things get into the platform as possible. So, you know, it's the message we've been, you know, trying to send through this podcast for months now, which is basically we should take every win we get and keep asking for more wins. Yeah. Yeah. And also, even if it does get into the final Democratic platform... It's not a victory until it's policy. Yeah, absolutely. So keep fighting. And as always, um, whenever we talk about the um, Biden campaign and the 2020 election uh, referencing Biden, we just want to remind everyone there is still an outstanding um, allegation by Tara Reid against Joe Biden for um, sexual assault. As always, also, the person who is currently in the White House, uh, who will be Biden's opponent, um, has you know, dozens of allegations against him and including a um, essential confession on his part to uh, an unwanted sexual touching. And so, yeah, just wanted to, as we committed to early on, just keep that in mind and keep pushing for resolution on that front. Yeah. And now it's time for one of our favorite segments... Asshat of the week. So, Nathan, who is our asshat this week? Well, Michael, our asshat this week is a GOP election commissioner in Mississippi by the name of Gail Welch. Wow, she sounds like a peach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> or maybe a great. It's a very that's a very church lady <laughs> name, you know. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is. Um, although, so definitely she not the type of church I would want to go to because. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So she was recently caught on her Facebook making a comment about who she believes should be voting in Mississippi. So she said, quote, I'm an election commissioner in Jones County. I'm concerned about voter registration in Mississippi 
the blacks are having lots of events for voter registration. People in Mississippi have to get involved too. Thank you for all you do. First spelled F I R. Yeah. Yeah, I I I did I did that on purpose. Holy, Holy shit. <laughs> oh my god, this is awesome. Okay. And horrible. Mostly horrible. Where to start? I know. I know. I mean <laughs> Shouldn't she be like kicked out of her position for she this? Is like, this still, seems... She is still there. Yeah. Oh my gosh, it's absolutely crazy. So yeah, so first of all, like I just want to com- comment on like the implicit linguistic turn that says so much about her, where she contrasts black people with people. Yeah, like well, that. That really stands out to me. Yeah, like I. So I just looked this up. Uh, apparently, um, black or African Americans make up thirty-seven point eight percent. Of the Mississippi population. Mm. They are the people of Mississippi. Like, you're saying that... So so basically what you're saying is that the black people of Mississippi... That's not Mississippi. Those aren't people in Mississippi. Yeah. Oh, my God. And That's crazy. And, and, and look, this... This goes back to what we have said, which is... If your strategy hinges on fighting against people registering to vote, you're just a bad politician. Yeah. I mean, if you suck so much at policy, at making good policy, that you have to prevent people from voting in order to win, then that reflects a lot more on you. Yeah. So she was called out for this. Um, and she said, and, and she said that it wasn't her intention to, to appear racist. Mm. Um, the word she, appear uh, is really important there. <laughs> I just didn't want to like get seen being racist. Yeah. She, she also said that it wasn't, she didn't intend for it to be public. Oh it's like you gosh. posted it on Facebook. Yeah. No, I feel like, I feel like <laughs> Facebook is like, you know, for all of its faults going to be the savior of a lot of, a lot of, um, yeah. or I should say the savior of us and like in like putting out of their misery, a lot of like, people that are bad with computers because they just don't know how to not say things that are racist out loud. Yeah. That's great. That's great. Uh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> just like so everything terrible. about this, so like just, oh, it's so racist. So intentionally like partisan. And what's like, bad using is I'm her... looking, I'm looking at the screenshot and I'm seeing one heart on it. Oh, like, that's so sad. <laughs> It's like, who, who put a heart on this? Screw that person. Yeah, seriously. <laughs> but anyway, congratulations to Gail Welch for being our Asshat of, of the, the week. week. And so for our next segment, we will be starting out our series on um, criminal justice and criminal justice reform. Um and we'll be starting by talking about the school-to-prison pipeline and kind of what that means and why it's a problem. Before we go into that, there are a few things that I do want to establish about uh, crime and um, race. So it's important to note that the biggest driver, one of the biggest drivers of crime is poverty. So according to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, People in houses at or below the federal poverty line 
have more than double the rate of violent victimization as persons in high-income households. So people in high-income households, violent crime rates are uh, 16.9 per 1,000. When it comes to poor blacks, that number is 51.3 per 1,000. When it comes to poor whites, that number is 56.4 per 1,000. So first off, any white supremacist asshole that tries to make the argument that um, the reason why significantly more uh, black people commit crimes is because there's just something inherently wrong with black people. That's just wrong. That is statist- That is just factually incorrect. Yeah. The reason Which is why- an argument people make. And like, yeah. and even if they don't make it explicitly, they imply it yeah. regularly. Well, the implication is always there. Like, yeah. one thing, one argument that I would make is that anybody that is making the argument that we don't need to have policies that specifically, that are specifically focused on reducing poverty in minority communities, mm-hmm. any argument, anybody that makes that argument, the implication is that, well, black people tend to be poor because there's just something about black people that make them poor. Like, yeah, they, that is they're just, the they're less aspirational. Yeah. So, so 22% of black people in the United States live at or below the federal poverty line. So the fact of the matter is that the reason why more people from minority communities tend to be in the criminal justice system is because they tend to be impoverished. And the reason why they tend to be impoverished, it's not because black people are lazy or anything. And again, if you are against systems or policies that are specifically put in place in order to try to fight against that disproportionate amount of poverty in the African-American community, you are implying that. Yeah. You're I'm not saying that, that you actively believe that, way. but that is the implication. Yes. Yeah. You're implying that they deserve it in some way. Yeah. So with that in mind, let's look at where the criminal system begins yeah. with schooling. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and to your point, like it, it, it does significantly start with poverty. Like to start this off, so so this basically the school to prison pipeline is a collection of policies and practices which serve to push students out of schools and into the juvenile criminal justice system, um, and this often leads to like a vicious cycle and and ends up with them serving long term prison sentences as adults. Um, so basically, it's the process of criminalizing youth. Uh, that is carried out by disciplinary policies and practices within schools um, that that often put uh, students in contact with law enforcement. But a significant and really important part of that, which connects back to Nathan's point, is that this is much more common in underfunded schools. Like, like schools with fewer resources tend to have this more often. Like they tend to have to outsource the disciplinary practices to a police officer who's a, a, you know, known as a school resource officer. Um, They tend to have a fewer, like a higher student to teacher ratio. So a more difficult time um, controlling classrooms and giving one-on-one help Um, on top of like all of the 
incredible challenges that come with living in poverty. The schools themselves are worse at serving students. And that is significant. And that is because schools in the United States are primarily funded by property taxes. And so we know, as we've talked about many times that, um, and Nathan was just discussing, like poverty is a significant problem in the black community and not by accident. You know, we have had systems in place in this country for an incredibly long time that have that have led us here, including redlining um, and other policies, and led us to this this place where the median household income for a white family is one hundred and forty six thousand dollars, and the median household income for a black family is thirteen thousand dollars. Twelve times the level of income for a white family compared to a black family, and so that like that vicious cycle that flows through the economics of property value through schools that are then disciplined by police officers is the genesis of so many of these issues that are then responded to with these practices that end up landing um, young people in prison and young black people in prison disproportionately. So that's like that's a huge point. And oftentimes, even beyond just the policing of schools, there's also zero tolerance policies that implement yes. harsh punishments for minor offenses. Like a person getting suspended for bringing a pair of scissors to school. Yeah. Or just some minor ass mistake. Yeah. Or, or cursing at a teacher. Yeah. Like, I'm not saying that it's okay to do that, but... Certainly not. But, like... But the, the problem is, when you suspend students, they start to... They get backed up on their work. They miss class time. Yeah. They're more likely to have to repeat a grade, and that just perpetuates the cycle. I mean, answer me this. Which dumbass thought it was a good idea to suspend people for skipping school? <laughs> who decided that was a good idea yeah <laughs> like i remember being in high school and hearing like hearing that is one of the disciplinary policies and i was like that sounds very stupid yeah <laughs> like that's you're giving them like exactly a, what they want i guess <laughs> yeah yeah and not only that but oftentimes when you have students that are suspended or expelled they have to move into other programs mm -hmm. that are often of a lower quality. Yeah. And not only that, many of them are private, which means that they don't have the same standards as the public system. Mm -hmm. So I'm not saying that we should let, just let kids get away with anything. Sure. I'm definitely not saying that. But at the end of the day, it ends up doing more harm than good to suspend students or expel them for minor infractions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so like once a student is expelled or suspended, studies show that they are way less likely to complete high school, to Nathan's point, and they're nearly twice as likely to be arrested while on leave from school. And they're way more likely to be in contact with the juvenile system um, that ultimately feeds them into like what becomes basically a lifelong relationship with the criminal justice system and it, be, it, it might be one thing this this would be like a big problem if it were equally distributed but 
you know, this, like these suspensions um, are three times more likely to be used against a black student than a white student. And um, they're twice as likely to suspend someone um, who is disabled versus their non-disabled peers, and 1.4 times more likely to face suspension if you're an LGBTQ um, person versus your straight peers. So like, this is basically hurting everybody that is going, potentially going through something in their lives that is challenging, that the school system is having a hard time serving them. And instead of making policies that actually serve them well, they just kick them out of school. And yeah. then, you know, that has really, really harmful effects. And one thing that I didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the recommendations from the task force mm -hmm. is that fighting against the school to prison pipeline is also one of the one yeah. of the policy recommendations by, from the task force, yeah. which is huge. Yeah, that's huge. And yeah, you might, so so we've talked about kind of why this is a disproportionate problem, but but now I want to talk about why this is a really big problem for our criminal justice system. Because it's one thing if, you know, students are getting suspended and expelled and like, you know, they go on to become people that didn't complete high school and they're all math geniuses. That's one thing. If, if it's all goodwill hunting, we're probably okay. But, <laughs> but the reality is that that's just not true. So, you know, once you're suspended or kicked out of school, you're, you know, twice as likely to be arrested. Um, and then a 2015 report from um, the CSG Justice Center um, put together data from, from 39 states to track recidivism of juvenile offenders. So, so once you're arrested once as a juvenile, how likely are you to go back and, and commit a crime and be arrested again? And what they found was that some of the highest reports were that, you know, 76% of juvenile offenders would commit another crime and be arrested within three years and 84% within five years. And, you know, okay, maybe that's, that's a problem, but you know, if they're just, you know, committing some, some crimes as a kid and then ultimately as adult, they're fine. That's one thing. But the reality is actually that people who were incarcerated as juveniles are 23% more likely to end up in jail as an adult compared to juveniles who were, um, who committed a crime, but then because of a lenient judge weren't incarcerated. So if you actually put people in prison in these juvenile detention centers, um, which happens often, they're 23% more likely to end up in jail. So, so 40% of kids who went into a detention center are in prison by the time they're 25. So the fact is that the connection between these harsh policies, the zero tolerance policies, between using police officers and the criminal justice system to solve school disciplinary problems, which are the result of poverty for the students and underfunding for the schools, are, are funneling these kids into, like basically directly into long-term prison sentences as adults. And to Nathan's point earlier, like we know that education is one of the best ways to help people climb the socioeconomic ladder, to help people stay out of prison once they've been in prison. And, you know, where we like have the system in this country where we require everybody to go to school when they're a kid. And instead of leveraging that to turn out great 
people and citizens and people that are like great members of our society. Instead, we are putting them at such a disadvantage and investing so little in them that we're just putting them in prison instead, which is worse for literally everyone. Yeah. This is where it starts. Yeah. There is so much messed up with our criminal justice system. That's why we wanted to start this series. And the cycle starts at the school level. Now, mm -hmm. there's supposed to be this presumption of innocence when it comes to children. When it comes to children, yeah. there's supposed to be this presumption that if they are misbehaving, it is because maybe their home life. Maybe there is some type of issue that they face from, from being impoverished, but it's not necessarily their fault. Yeah. Which means that we need to work with them. And our system, let's face it, is lazy. Yeah. Because instead of trying to work with people that have problems, that, that have issues, you know, people with disabilities, people in the LGBT community, instead of trying to work with them to try to help them through school to help them avoid the bullying that happens in school or to help them overcome the ways in which their treatment by society might influence their behavior. Mm -hmm. We just want to get rid of them. Yeah. And that is not okay. Yeah. It is an insult that anybody refers to our criminal justice system as a correctional system. Mm. It is not correctional all it does is turn minor misbehavior into violent crime yeah, and ruin the lives of people that had, a, um, that had an unequal dish served to them by the society that they are supposed to trust. Yeah. Yeah. And the last, the last kind of point I want to make on this is just like to Nathan's, to Nathan's point, like we're failing these kids from the very beginning. You know, it starts with the like the the dish that we serve them right from the very beginning. And, you know, we tend to presume innocence in kids. But these practices start even in preschool. Yeah. So so like it's not just violent high school kids like carrying knives or whatever to school or scissors or hairbrushes or whatever um, who are getting suspended or expelled. According to one study, nearly seven of every thousand preschoolers, that's, that's particularly high of preschoolers, are expelled from state-funded preschool programs. And as we see time and time again, black preschool children make up a disproportionate group. So, you know, in, uh, at the time of this particular study, um, black preschoolers made up 18% of the students but accounted for 48% of the preschool suspensions. Preschool. Yeah, we're failing and starting, we're starting the process of sending people to prison for their lives in preschool. And with that happy note, it's time to go ahead and end the pod with our highlights. So, Michael, what are your highlights for this week? Um, so my highlight, I think, 
is actually so so we went to a farmer's market this weekend which we haven't done in a really long time and just got some like awesome produce and I got to do some really fun and delicious cooking over the weekend and it was just awesome. I made this wild mushroom um, spaghetti with farm-raised blue oyster mushrooms and fresh garlic. It was like one of the best things I've ever made. Um, Yeah, so it was awesome. What about you? Well, my highlight would definitely be getting to see my parents for the first time in weeks, Mm. Um, actually months at this point. Uh, We did a social distance visit where um, we spent pretty much the entire time outside. Um, We sat down like with benches that were much more than six feet away from each other. Like we were on (laughs) different sides of the yard, basically. Um, but we had, (laughs) (laughs) but we, we had a really nice visit. Uh, it was really good to see them again. Um, got into an argument with my dad, which happens a lot. Yeah. Just like old Uh, times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and yeah, I, I, I miss them and I am really looking forward to being able to visit them again someday in a non-social distancey type way. So we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. There's something special about getting to hug your mom. Yeah. You know, I haven't like, I, I live with, I still, I do live with my grandmother and you know, even though we have like, we haven't imposed too much social distancing, like within the people in the house because we're part of the same circle. But I still, I still haven't hugged her. Like mm. we haven't hugged each other in months and we, we hugged each other all the time. It was sad. sad. Yeah. That was yeah. one of our tips. Health hugs, man. You got, it's about, it's about the health. Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. Before the pandemic started, that was one of our, yeah. uh, <laughs> that's, that's so depressing. I know. I know. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening to the Perspectrum, and you'll hear from us again next week.